You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, many of you know that my name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here. Not Brandon Hayes. Sometimes I wish I was, although I can't do jeans that skinny. Brandon actually took uh, today off to celebrate his 10 year anniversary with his bride. So Brandon, uh, thank you, buddy. But also, hey, congratulations if you're watching uh, on being faithful uh, and showing us uh, how to love your wives and just be faithful in your marriage and congratulations on 10 years. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, We are in our series called The Book, and we have finally made it to the New Testament. So if you would turn to the book of Matthew, and specifically all the way to the end, chapter 28. Uh, I know of a couple of guys in this church who are particularly excited that we have finally made it to the New Testament, and their names are David Wilson and Brandon Hayes. And I share this with you because as we've been working through this series, as pastors, as much as we love the Old Testament, we Probably all of us recognize that the Old Testament can be very difficult to preach from. So I'm sharing this with you because Brandon was telling me just a week or two ago that he and brother David had had this running joke for the last several weeks where they would see each other in the hallway and just count down and look at each other and know exactly what they were saying, but they would say, hey, three weeks, two weeks, next week. (laughs) We have finally made it to the New Testament, and uh, I'm excited that I get to share with you this morning. The title of my time, our time together, is Guaranteed, So Get to Work. Guaranteed, So Get to Work. Matthew 28 is where we're going to be. Now, if I'm honest, there is so much that could be said of this passage, but we only have a short amount of time, so I'm going to do my best to be quick and also limit it to where I want to focus in on this text. Just to let you know, if you're taking notes... I want to work under two umbrellas, two banners, if you will. The first half or the first part of the sermon, I've called or labeled the chasm of the commission, the chasm of the commission. And then the second part, the second half of the message, I've labeled the clarification of the commission. So we have the chasm of the commission and the clarification of the commission. Uh, First, I aim to do as we're thinking about the chasm of the commission, I aim to talk about the distinct difference when you think about what the word chasm means, when you think of the void or the distinct difference between what the commission is and how we understand it. Y'all follow me? I believe there's a chasm there and I kind of want to help us in seeing what the commission is, what it commands and what what it calls us to do. And then secondly, we'll work under the banner of the clarification of the commission. And there I want to try and clarify a little bit about the commission and give you three takeaways as we dive into this text. So we'll begin this morning by thinking about the chasm of the commission. And before we dive in, if you would join me as we pray. Father, we've come to the portion of our service where we get to worship through your word We thank you for the time that we've had together singing and celebrating the gospel through the truths of the songs that we sang this morning. But now, God, I pray that you would help us to be attentive and mindful to what your word says. Father, help me to be clear. 
Help me to bring clarity, Lord, uh, to encourage and to call to action, Lord, uh, and not to belittle. Father, forgive us where we failed you. Father, remind us that there is new grace and new mercy even for today, and Lord, that we can leave here a changed people because of who you are and what you've done and also through the power of your word. So we pray that you would speak to us in these next few moments, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we approach the 28th chapter of Matthew's gospel account, we see that Matthew has decided to conclude his writing with a specific conclusion to his story. So the gospel according to Matthew, obviously written by a guy named Matthew, who was a tax collector, who would later become one of Jesus's 12 disciples. And Matthew begins his gospel record with the genealogy of Jesus. And then he moves quickly into the birth of Jesus. And then he continues throughout his gospel account by noting Jesus's teachings, his miracles, things about his life, his death, and specifically his resurrection, which is what we will see here towards the end of the book of Matthew. And then as he continues through writing uh, this gospel account, he concludes it specifically with what we know as the Great Commission. Now, Matthew did all of this with one specific thing in mind. He was aiming to portray Jesus as the one true Messiah who has come to usher in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think there there have been many people throughout their lives and throughout history who at some point wondered this question as they open up the Bible and attempt to read it and understand it. And the question is this, why four gospels? So to take a moment to clear any confusion, I wanted to talk about uh, why I believe we have four gospel accounts and and what that means. But the truth is this, we have one gospel, but four different accounts or four different records. But you may ask the question, why four? Well, one of the best ways I've learned um, to understand the necessity maybe behind why we have four different gospel accounts is to consider an illustration that I read just a couple of weeks ago as I was preparing for this message. So imagine if you would, that you were in a court being accused of a heinous crime and the judge was there ready to commit you uh, to some sort of punishment and the jury was there, but you had four of your best friends who came in to give an eyewitness account of the event that you were being accused for on your behalf. And one by one, your friends would stand in a line and they would give an account of the situation that they saw, but they used the exact same words No difference, no difference in tone. They each said the same exact thing. Now, I ask you to wonder, what good would that do? I kind of think like maybe the judge would say after the second person, okay, that's enough. Now, if your four friends who came in to give an account on your behalf stood there and they told the same story, using the same details, but each of them use their own words, shining new light on the situation, my question would be how much stronger would their testimony be then? I believe that to be the case of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One gospel, one Jesus, but four different accounts telling the same story from different perspectives, aiming to portray Jesus in a particular way. In fact, if you were to do a little study on the Gospels and each of them, 
you would see that each of the four authors wrote, a spe- wrote to a specific audience as they were writing. They had a specific group of people in mind and they each aimed to portray Jesus in a particular way. Matthew, for example, aimed in his writing to set forth Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Matthew also repeatedly used the phrase kingdom of heaven. He used that phrase over th- about 32 times and he used the word kingdom a little over 50 times. Now Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord, as we see in Mark chapter 10. But Mark focuses specifically or more in on the works and the deeds of Jesus as he lived here on earth. Now Luke, who was a doctor or a physician, wrote a more scholarly account of the life of Jesus. And he aimed to portray Jesus as the son of man, the one rejected by Israel, but then who would later be offered up for the sins of the world. And then we get to the gospel of John and I'll be honest, friends. John's just like off in left field all by himself. He's almost like the redheaded stepchild. Now I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a good way. Uh, But what I mean is John's gospel account is different from the other three where the other three kind of leaned in on each other. They would look at each other's writings and they would tell the same story. John kind of does his own thing. But what I love about the gospel of John, even though it's almost in a class by itself, John specifically tells us why he wrote his letter in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, personally, I've just resorted to seeing it this way. When I, what I mean is when I'm trying to explain what the gospels are and what they do, I would just put it this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so glorious, so wonderful, and so magnificent. It is just as deep and as much as it is wide that God decided to give us four separate accounts. Now, these four books are not the gospel in and of themselves, but they contain the gospel because they are written records of the life and work of Christ Jesus. Now, why is it so important for us, Christians or non-Christians, to understand what the gospel is, specifically thinking God gave us four different books? I would conclude maybe it means that God cares a lot about his gospel and he wants us to know it because of its debt and its power. Well, to, picture to, uh, to give you a picture of the power and importance of the Gospels, the first four books in the New Testament, I'd like to tell you about a man named Nabil Qureshi. Nabil would have turned 38 years old literally this week. Uh, it would have been on Tuesday, April 13th. He would have turned 38. But he was diagnosed with stomach cancer in August of 2016, and he lost his life in September of 2017. Now, what is so unique about Nabil is Nabil was raised as a devout Muslim. He was even trained to defend the religion and his beliefs. But Nabil became a converted Muslim who decided to follow Christ. He found the truth of the gospel as he studied the scriptures. And here's the quote I want to share with you. Nabil said this, I left Islam because I studied Muhammad's life but I accepted the gospel because I studied Jesus's life. Dear friends, may we find the wonders of the gospel as we study his life in these first four books of the New Testament.
So as Brandon asked me to fill in for him this weekend, knowing that we would finally hit the New Testament and be in Matthew, my mind almost immediately went to chapter 28, thinking about the Great Commission. So I'd like to look at it with you this morning because this passage is very near and dear to my heart for several reasons. And I want you to know that I have prayed that I would serve you well this morning as we worship together in the hearing of his word. Now, part of what I meant just a moment ago when I said that this passage is special to me or that it's near and dear to my heart is because of this, so lean in. What this passage commands of Christians is something I believe many of us are lacking. But for some of us, in God's gracious sovereignty, God took one man who was committed to making disciples, placed him in my life. This man offered to come alongside me to teach me the scriptures in a one-on-one way. He wanted to encourage me uh, on how to share my faith, taught me how to share my faith. He wanted me to live intentionally and live boldly for the gospel. He showed me the importance of loving my wife and leading my family. And he did all that as reminding me of the way that Jesus loves his bride, the church. And it was in that one year, that time period of my life, about that one year that this man dedicated himself to me. God used that one year to transform my life. And looking back on it, because it happened many years ago, I can look back on it and say that that was a part of God's plan that would now bring me to this point to where I get to enter into pastoral ministry. So with that before us, let's read this passage Let's talk about it, and then hopefully we'll worship together and be encouraged. Look at verse 16. So we're going to pick up. We're going to go all the way through to the end. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Keep in mind, remember, Jesus had 12, right? But what happened to one of them? He didn't turn out so hot. So there's 11, but that 12th one would soon be replaced. We'll see in the book of Acts. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. That's an important phrase. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Man, that is just like humans, isn't it? (laughs) Jesus, is it really you? Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, before we dive into the text a little bit, I want to explain why I spent some time at the beginning of our time together to talk about the book of Matthew and why we have four different gospel accounts. My hope in spending a few minutes to do that is so that you would see that there is a deep connection between the gospel of Jesus, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's a connection between that and the Great Commission. In fact, if we don't have a gospel, we don't have a Great Commission. But because we have a gospel, we do have a Great Commission. And this is true, even if you were to consider the timing of Jesus's resurrection and the time he commissioned his disciples. Now for us, it literally looks like it was minutes, but actually it was about a week to a week and a half after his resurrection because Jesus went on appearing to people and then he had this predetermined meeting with his boys. 
So about a week after he was resurrected, he said, I got to meet my guys on top of the mountain because I got to tell them what the plan is. Now we could take that same sentiment and say this, if you are a gospel man or a gospel woman, someone who has been transformed by the gospel, converted is now a Christian, then by default, you should be a great commissioned man or woman. Amen? By default. But, dear friends, it seems we've gone astray somewhere. Somewhere through the course of history, maybe the last 100 or 200 years, we've resorted to just doing church and maybe losing focus on being the church and not being a people about the Great Commission. Now, to show you that this is just not my own opinion or beliefs, I want to share some t- statistics with you, excuse me, that you're going to see on the screen. Uh, Raymond, if you throw that first one up. This uh, is, I pulled from Barna, Barna Research Group, which is a great resource. They did this at the end of 2017 and they published it at the beginning of 2018. And what they aimed to do was to ask churchgoers about the Great Commission. So here you see, have you heard of the Great Commission? Out of the thousand people they surveyed, 51 of them said, said no. 6% said, I'm not sure. 17% said yes, and I kind of get what it means. And then that other 25% said yes, but I don't really know the exact meaning of it. Go to the next one for me, buddy. Here they broke it down into generations. So it's color-coded. You can see at the top, elders, boomers, generation X, millennials, and then they broke it down into this group of people has heard and they remember exactly what the Great Commission is. You can see the numbers there. Then the second one is they've heard of, but they cannot recall that they don't really know what the Great Commission is. Then that third one is they can correctly identify the Great Commission from a list, meaning if they look at passages of scripture, they could tell you that that is the Great Commission, which I'll show you in just a second. And then the bottom one, uh, it's kind of interesting to look at the generations, uh, but to see there who flat out just doesn't know the Great Commission at all. Go to that last one, Raymond. So here's what they did. They put a list of scriptures in front of churchgoers and they asked them to label which one was the Great Commission. You can see out of those thousand people, I believe it was, 37% actually got it right. 16%, the Great Commission is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind. It's a great verse, but that's not the Great Commission. Uh, 8% said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No comes of the Father except through me. 5%, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. That could be tricky, but that's not the Great Commission. But look at the bottom, 33% said, I'm not sure if any of those passages are the Great Commission. Thank you, Raymond. I shared that with you because those statistics kind of showed me, reminded me, proved what I've been learning just as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Christ, and as a pastor. In his book called Born to Reproduce, Dawson Trotman said this, The curse of today is that we are too busy. Now I'm not talking about being busy earning money to buy food. I'm talking about being busy doing Christian things. We have spiritual activity with very little productivity. Dear friends, please know my heart. Um, I, I, I love the church. I believe in the church. God is coming back. Jesus is coming back to rescue his bride, the church. And I'm not aiming to be belittling or discouraging here. I'm simply just wanting to address a problem and graciously call us into action. So there's the chasm. 
let's look at the clarification of the commission. And I wanna point out three things here. If you're taking notes, you'll, you can jot them down, you'll see them on the screen. The first thing I want to show you, and let, let me preface all this by saying, in all the years that I've been teaching or preaching, this is maybe the third-ish time that I have alliterated my points. Does anyone know what I mean by alliterated? All my points begin with the same letters. Brother David, on the, hand, on the other hand, is great at that. Sometimes I listen to him teach and preach, and I'm just like, how do you do that? Like, where do you get those words? <laughs> I decided to do that. I don't do it very often, but the words that I chose to show us and pull truth from this text, I hope will speak to you. So the first thing I want you to see in the Great Commission, specifically from verses 18 and 19, is that there is a momentous mandate. There is a momentous mandate. Now, I didn't just pick those words out of thin air. I actually looked at what they meant and they fit almost perfectly. If you were to look at the word momentous and what it means, it's an adjective that describes an event of great importance or significance, especially in its bearing of the future. So this great commission, this event is definitely momentous because of what Jesus was gonna say to his disciples and what it meant for the future. Now, the word mandate is a noun. It simply means it's an official order or commission to do something. And as a verb, it's to give someone authority to act in a certain way. So Jesus gives this momentous mandate to his buddies. And this indeed is a momentous occasion in the life of the church and it's also an incredibly important mandate for the future of Christianity. And if you'd like to know why I believe that, it's because of this. Look around the room. Literally, turn to your left or your right. You and I are sitting in this room 2,000 years removed from the resurrection. As a part of a church, a group of people who have heard the gospel, believed in it, repented of their sin, or trusted Christ because of 11 men who were faithful to obey that command and gave their lives for it. 11 men who followed Jesus for three years, obeyed the command, and they gave their lives to further the kingdom. There's a part of me that really wonders what they must have thought, like just to be in that moment with them. Like Jesus meets them on the mountaintop, it's an important occasion, gives them commission, and all of a sudden, up into the sky he goes. He disappears into the sky. Now, part of me thinks, I try to put myself there. Like, what were they thinking? Were they worried? Like, what does this mean? What does Jesus want us to do? Like, Jesus, come back. We're not done. We've got questions. Can you clarify a few things? He's gone. Deuces, good luck, fellas. Or... The other part of me thinks maybe they knew exactly what Jesus meant. Think about it. These guys had just spent the last three years of their lives with Jesus day in and day out. He called them disciples for a reason. And during those three years, he showed them why he called them because he was training them to live out their faith and carry out his mission long after he would be gone. So this commission is utterly important and it is momentous for two very important reasons. Number one, it's momentous because of what it commanded, which I'm gonna talk about in just a second. Number two, 
Who commanded it? Jesus commanded it. He said, look at verses 18 and 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Now, not that he didn't have to say it, but he did. Because it's not like Jesus got authority in a specific moment. Because if you look actually earlier in Matthew chapter 7, people perceive Jesus as one who taught with authority. See, what I believe Jesus is saying is now he has definitively proved that he is the son of God. He has conquered death. And in light of that, God gave him all authority over all things. And what does Jesus do with it? Go and make disciples. So Jesus has authority over all things. The wind and the waves, sickness and in health, rulers and nations, salvation and condemnation, and most importantly, life and death. And all of it falls under the rule and authority of Jesus. But dear friends, I feel I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't clarify what the command actually is. Because in all my years of teaching and preaching and doing ministry and being, trying to be a guy who's about the Great Commission, when I asked this question to other people, whether it was adults or mostly students, I said, hey, what is the command or maybe the mandate here in, in the Great Commission? I found that it can be confusing, but actually it's really simple. Most times people read this passage and assume that the command is to go. No, the command is to make. It's understood the way Jesus actually worded this. It's almost a presupposition. Jesus knew that his boys were gonna go, but he wanted them to make. It's almost as if you, as if you could read this verse as Jesus saying, since you are going to go or as you are going, then make disciples. Whatever you do, wherever you go, dear friends, make disciples. So there's a momentous mandate. Secondly, I wanna show you, there is a profound promise. There is a profound promise in this text that I've seen, and I'm gonna be honest, for years, I felt like I've just kind of skimmed over it. Like I've seen it, I said, Yes, that's great, I need it. But it wasn't until coming back to it just the last couple of weeks where the Lord allowed it to sink in a little deeper. Matthew decides to end his gospel account literally with this last phrase. This is the last phrase we see in his book. I am with you always to the end of the age. Now read it again because I'll tell you what my mind does occasionally. Your mind might do it occasionally as well if I'm talking about this verse, or this verse or trying to memorize it, my mind usually says this, I will be with you. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am. Present tense, always acting there with you. Listen to this. One of the greatest things God could ever give us is himself. Amen? Greater than any material possession or relationship, nothing is greater than God's presence. And that's what Jesus promises his boys, his buddies, his disciples. Now, if I could be real with everyone for just a moment and be vulnerable and share a fear of mine, I, I feel like uh, this fear is a common fear, maybe that most of you even have. I have a fear of being alone. Being alone can lead people into dark places. Now, I don't just mean feeling lonely, like I haven't been around people for a few hours. I mean alone. Does anyone resonate with me? Like no one cares, no one knows, no one wants to be with me. 
No one wants to be alone. But that's not the way that we were designed to be. So thankfully, God in his grace gives us family and friends and even more importantly, brings us into his family, calls us his own and gives us a purpose. But I think one also, excuse me, also one of the greatest fears that people have on top of being alone is doing things that seem impossible or doing something that makes them feel uncomfortable if they had to do it alone. But thankfully, by God's grace, he does not operate that way. Dear Christian, one of the greatest comforts you and I can take away from this text is the promise that Jesus gives that he is with us always. Like even right now. He's here. Right here. I remember when I started volunteering and moving into a position on staff at the church that we came from in Tennessee. It's a picture in, in the pastor's office who, pastor's a good friend of mine. And uh, I remember seeing in the corner and it was a picture of a pastor in the pulpit and behind him in the back was kind of a small legion of angels, but behind him was Jesus and his hand was on his shoulder. That's encouraging for any pastor I know, but for the Christian, if you belong to Christ, you have the spirit of God in you. Jesus is with you. John Piper said of this text, this, the fact that Jesus said, all authority is mine, gives you and I a warrant for such an outrageous mission. The fact that he says, I will be with you, gives you your hope that you can do it. The profound promise of the Great Commission leads us to this third and final thing that I wanna show you. Dear friends, it's not there on paper, but there is a glorious guarantee. It's the title of my time and this is where I wanted to bring us. There is a glorious guarantee. This last point, like I said just a moment ago, it's not there, but if you look, it's there. Because underneath the truth that Jesus has been given all authority on heaven and on earth, underneath the truth that God is sovereign in all things, underneath the truth that God cannot lie, nor can he break any of his promises, underneath all of that is the guarantee that this mission will be completed. This mission will be completed. It is not on our shoulders. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about this. This mission will be completed. It is not resting on the shoulders of man. Rather, it is grounded definitively on the promises of God. I thought about this uh, a week or two ago. It was something from February. Um, after the Super Bowl, after uh, the Buccaneers had won with Tom Brady, and I'm not trying to bring up a wound because I know it was the Patriots, or excuse me, it was the Patriots, the Chiefs. Um, I'm really not. But I read, I heard something after the Super Bowl that I thought was really cool. The night before the game, Tom Brady texted his entire team and said this, and I'm paraphrasing, but he kept it short and sweet. And he said, we will win tomorrow. Now, because history has played out, this illustration would mean nothing if the Buccaneers didn't win. <laughs> but they did. 
So to hear about his confidence and his assurance in his team, knowing that he was going to lead them, they won. God has guaranteed this mission. So let's get to work. Now, I have just a couple minutes left and the way I wanted to round out and end this, our time together is by way for us to think about application and maybe even a call to action. Let me tell you about the great tension I had this week. It wasn't just writing the sermon to talk about the great commission. Rather, it was trying to figure out a way to help brothers and sisters to see that the great commission is not just for missionaries, nor is it just for pastors. The great commission is given to the church for the church. I was going through social media a couple of weeks ago and I came across a post that I ended up saving. I had no idea why I came across because the social media feed was like home moms or something for women. And I was like, why am I seeing this? Either way, it was an encouragement and I wanna share it with you this morning. So I'm paraphrasing what this quote was that I found on social media. It said this, the great commission is for parents. It's for moms and dads. Parents, your children need the gospel. They need to be taught to observe Jesus's commands. Your children need to be taught Jesus is with them. So if you're not able to go across the ocean to make disciples, you can make disciples at the breakfast table or before bedtime or while you're driving around town. The Great Commission is for the young adult. That's the end quote. I'm I'm moving on to something else here now. The Great Commission is for the young adult, the young professional who may not be married yet, so he or she is able to leverage themselves for the spread of the gospel to all nations. The Great Commission is for the college student who might be in this room, who might have a classmate who's from another country, or maybe they have a friend who dabbles in another religion. The Great Commission is for the middle school or high school student who literally walks past hundreds of students a day. Young men, the Great Commission is for the guy on the football team who's struggling with an abusive parent at home. Or young ladies, it's for the girl on your volleyball team who suffers with self-esteem issues, constantly feeling unworthy or undervalued. The Great Commission is for you because it commands those who have been forgiven by Jesus to take his message of forgiveness and hope to the world. The Great Commission is for everyone. It's for the church. And as great as that is, I can't leave you there. Because hopefully what I've done is explained, hey, there is an issue, there's a problem. The command is not to go, the command is to make. But if I leave us there, I feel like it'd be doing us a disservice because there's one other important aspect I wanna clarify before we wrap this up. Uh, Praise team, if you wanna come up, we're we're, we're getting there. The word for disciple, I believe, has gotten lost in translation over time. In fact, if I were to ask 50 people in this room what a disciple is, I would probably get 30 different answers. So let me kind of set the stage for what I mean here by quoting a friend of mine who pastors a church in uh, San Antonio. He was here in February preaching at RD Now. His name is Drew Worsham. He was actually preaching at a youth pastors conference this week, like literally this week. And he said this, and I told him I was gonna borrow this and quote him and he got excited, kinda. He said this, disciples make disciples. And if that is true, then the opposite is also true. Those who do not make disciples are not disciples. 
Part of the reason I believe we're not making disciples is because we don't really know what it is. So in an effort to be helpful, to explain and to call us to action, let me clarify this really quickly. The Greek word that we see in the New Testament for disciples simply means a student or an apprentice. If you wanna go uh, further, disciple is a learner follower. Disciple is one who adheres to the teachings of another for the sake of growth or instruction. And dear friends, this is exactly what those 12 men who were called by Jesus did for three and a half years. Jesus summoned his disciples to the mountaintop that day to tell them, go and make more of you. But not just go and make converts, not just go and make Christians. He wanted them to share everything that he had given them over three years. In essence, Jesus was asking his fellows, his disciples, to replicate more of himself. Because here's the truth, the goal of disciple making is not to make more Tonys. We don't need more Tonys in this world, but we do need more Jesus. So to make a disciple is to replicate Jesus and other believers. To make disciples who make disciples is to commit your life to something that is greater than yourself. I'll be honest, it can be messy, it can be difficult. It may require extra effort on your part, but dear friends, it is always totally worth it. My prayer for us as we close is that we would begin to be a body of believers who would love the gospel and be a great commission people who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this commission. Father, be in us what we cannot be in ourselves because I know there are many people in this room who are maybe even intrigued or interested, maybe even convicted like, I haven't gotten this. No one's ever talked this way and I don't know what to do, but I, I, God, I pray that you would bring clarity. Help us to be a church of believers, a body of believers who not only love the gospel, but love people enough to share the message of hope and redemption with them. And Lord, that we would come alongside them and replicate more Jesus for the sake of the world and your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name I pray. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 